Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the new Digital Humanities series of the New Books Network. I'm Joanna Taylor. I'm a Presidential Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Manchester, and I mostly work on digital approaches to literature. So how or if we can use computers to read more books better will largely be the focus of my episodes in this series. And who better to start us off on this topic of conversation than our guest today? We're joined today by Martin Paul Eve, who is Professor of Literature, Technology and Publishing at Birkbeck at the University of London and Visiting Professor of Digital Humanities at Sheffield Hallam. Martin specialises in contemporary American fiction and he's been a real leading light in the move to open access publishing. Our focus today is on his most recent book, Close Reading with Computers, Textual Scholarship, Computational Formulism and David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which came out with Stanford University Press in 2019. Martin, hi. Hi. Thanks for having it's, me. It's so lovely to have you here. I've wanted to talk to you about this book for such a long time. Um, I think we're we're so used in digital humanities to hearing about ways that we can read more books more broadly more, with more distance and having a, a publication that tries to kind of turn that on its head I think is really exciting. Um, before we turn to the book itself though I wanted to ask you a bit about your background um, so I guess like most digital humanities scholars you've had I think it's fair to say quite a complex journey and maybe more than most people in our profession you've developed a pretty broad portfolio of interests and talents. So I was hoping that you could tell us a bit more about your journey to the work you do today and to the, the jobs that you have today. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the thing about my job title with literature, technology and publishing is that basically it's a set of my hobbies mashed into uh, making up a, a field of work. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I developed an interest in computer programming at age seven at school, where I was lucky enough to have an inspirational teacher who took me off the very dull uh, program of learning Microsoft Word and so on and, and let me uh, explore actually the book he'd written on computer programming. So I, I developed that interest very early on, but also at the same time, I was an avid reader and have been my whole life. Um, I studied English and drama at university with no digital components involved other than writing my essays, but I supported myself financially by doing computer programming work. So really, I've had conjoined interests in digital practices and particularly programming and literary studies my whole life. But it's only really been the past few years that those have, have come together as a research interest. They've before one was the pragmatic way in which I could support myself. The other was the field of, of uh, academic study that I was going through. I suppose the one area where they have always been linked, though, is in the stuff I've done around open access publishing. And I thought I'd just say a brief word on that, if that was of interest. Please say more than a brief word. <laughs> well, I mean, when I when I was doing my PhD, which was, again, not a digital humanities PhD, I did a 
PhD in theory and Tom and the novels of Thomas Pynchon, I I was introduced obviously to the world of academic publishing, and it just seemed to me absolutely off the wall insane the way that we'd structured our processes for dissemination in the internet age and i think that probably my my digital side of my background did play a role in my thinking there but i just became more and more fascinated by the social structures that condition how people behave in academia how that's determined what we have in terms of a publishing ecosystem and it's knock on economics for the academy and for access to information I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I think we're quite good at giving away um, our ideas and locking them behind a paywall, ordinarily. <laughs> right. We developed a system that's supposed to free academics from the demands of the market. You don't have to sell enough copies of your book to live, which means that you can you know, really focus on what's important to you. And that that's a kind of academic freedom. But then we decided that we were going to subject this work to the rigors of the market in terms of giving it to rapacious for-profit publishers like Elsevier to make 37% profit uh, on revenues of over a billion dollars a year. I mean... Gosh, those numbers are mad, aren't they? Yeah, it's these numbers are worse than Big Pharma and Big Oil put together, pretty much, for margins of what they're taking. And it just struck me as completely iniquitous at a time when you know, colleagues are being laid off at universities. Uh, we're trying to cut budgets everywhere we can, but these entities just go on appropriating our work and anyway locking it away and i just thought it'd be much better for education if we could come up with ways of giving work away for free um, and i should note that the book we're discussing today is openly available for download so while it's nicer to read it in a print copy and i encourage you to buy it um, it is also available if you can't afford that just to get free online with special digital appendices i think as well is that right yeah, so yeah, that was a an interesting negotiation with the press that had never really done that before is how do we include the data appendices on this work how do we give that sort of verification uh, process an airing when we've also got this very traditional media form of the book that that sets out an argument and i think we'll come to this in, in a little bit but a, a book about a book that in itself is quite complex from um, an open access and data perspective um can you walk us a little bit through the way that the debates shifted in the last, I guess, seven or eight years about um, open access and where where we are now with it. I mean, for some people, the debate has shifted, but there are an awful lot of people who still have their heads in the sand and just think they'd like to be left alone and they don't really care that they're locking knowledge away. You know, For 70 years after they're dead as well, the copyright will remain in the hands of those they sign it over to. And what I found most perplexing about the debate is that lots of colleagues I know marched in the UK against the imposition of tuition fees, angry that there was a, a locking away of knowledge behind a monetary constraint that most people couldn't meet. But those same people don't connect that to what they do with their research work and the fact that they do exactly the same thing. They enshrine it in the commodity form and then sell it, often at rates that are not affordable to those outside of academic libraries. Not to mention the implication for people on casual contracts um, or fixed-term contracts, I suppose. Right. I, I remember having a conversation, I think it was with one of my lecturers when I was an undergraduate, about this. And he said, you know, the thing that's most frustrating is that I'm on a temporary contract here and if I can't get another job, I'll lose access to 
all the publications and let me do my work that you know I spent my life studying to be involved with and it just that's when it kind of hit me that you know this isn't just a, a niche matter for people in the academy there's a whole raft of people who we ignore a lot of the time who don't have access who could benefit from access and there've got to be ways that we can both respect the labor involved in publishing and those intermediate entities you know I I picked on Elsevier that's the easy one to take a pop sure, shot yeah. at but you know it ranges from Elsevier down to small mission driven university presses who are one lawsuit away from bankruptcy and I think we need to acknowledge there's labor in publishing and recompense that but that we need to do that in a way that is conducive to the digital environment which is why I founded the Open Library of Humanities which now publishes 28 open access journals and has a revenue stream from 300 uh, libraries around the world to support that. And you've done amazingly in getting real leading academics on board with that as well. The publication list is impressive. To be honest, it's not hard to get academics on board with open access if you can get the economic model right. The model of asking academics or their funders or their universities to pay a fee when they publish doesn't sit easy in our disciplines because we don't have those big grants you get in the sciences where lots of work is project funded. So the model we have at OLH, which turns that on its head and basically says, well, let's make it look like a subscription, but we'll give everything away, means we get the best of both worlds. We've got a distributed uh, cost structure where lots of people are paying small amounts rather than one person paying a huge amount. And we've got openly accessible work uh, that's gone through peer review. So it's it's not hard if you can think lashly and get something like that in place. It is hard when you're a massive for-profit who comes to an academic and says, give us £2,000 to publish your article, because that money just doesn't sit in humanities departments. Right. I'd love to see the, um, the project that managed to award those kinds of publication fees. Um, you talk a little bit about this in, in the book, but I wonder if you could say something about how you think that digital humanities work might intersect with or or relate to the wider book marketplace and and these issues around the digital and digitization i guess that you're talking about um so this is where we get into the the dodgy terrain of trying to define digital humanities right yeah we shouldn't spend the entire podcast talking about what is and what isn't digital humanities but it is interesting to me that when you sift through various definitions, there are those who say that basically new media archaeologies or analyses are not digital humanities work. While I actually feel that critical study of digital phenomena is definitely digital humanities work. It's not just using digital methods. It's using conventional methods to analyze digital phenomena, and it's using digital phenomena to analyze digital humanities. But, sorry, to, to analyse uh, conventional humanities objects. Yeah. I guess the way it really came to the fore for me, though, was in the meta-critical thinking about um, copyright. And the fact was that while I found a brilliant text in this book that I wanted to work on closely, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, the challenge was that I didn't have a copy of that book in a digital form that I could work on uh, to do this stuff now you, you, of course you can buy an amazon kindle copy of cloud atlas pretty easily um, but that comes with digital rights management technology and actually one of my phd students at the time eric ketson drew to my attention that 
breaking the DRM off a text is a criminal, not a civil offence. So, this bit blew my mind yeah. in terms of practicalities of getting from, uh, as somebody who works on largely 19th century stuff as well, this is thing, a, a thing I don't have to deal with. You delve into the legalities of this a, a bit in the introduction. Yeah, and, and working with a text that's in copyright but and is only accessible in a format with DRM means that basically I had to retype the book in order to have a copy that I could legally use for these purposes. How long did that take you? Uh, that took me quite a while, but I actually had a stroke in 2016 and needed to recover over a period of a few months. So I didn't have much else to do. Um, so <laughs> I, I suppose like for that kind of recovery work, typing up a novel is and getting to read it in that really peculiar way as well. That must have been quite an intense relationship with the book. Well, I mean, that's the weirdest thing is that although I use a set of digital methods to supposedly show people things that they couldn't see without them, actually a lot of what I know about that text comes from that really close engagement over a period of months of just typing it out again, which is not something I do with every text I close read, but it was probably the closest read thing um, I've ever engaged with, even while most people would, would turn this a kind of distant reading, even though it's only of one book. That's what really struck me about the book as a whole, that it it oscillates I'm not even sure oscillates is the right word, but it, it balances this really intense form of closeness with um, a lot of the distant, a lot of distant techniques, some of which we're familiar with, some of which you've developed to work on um, on this novel. I guess I, one of the things that I wanted to ask was how you find that balance how you think we should be finding that balance between distance and closeness to get towards what a lot of people have started calling in the last couple of years something that's more multi-scalar yeah so I mean the challenge for me was that really I just wanted to tell people a load of interesting things about this book that I'd found but the, the challenge is that within literary studies if you're using novel methods to do this then actually you start to draw attention to those methods and they become the focus of what you're talking about. So DH works start to become meta works about methodology rather than literary critical works that tell us things about books. And I think a lot, a lot of recent work has tried to undo that. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of um, Ted Underwood and Andrew Piper's books from last year, which to me, seem to tell us literary critical stories using digital methods rather than using literary critical examples to tell us about digital methods. Uh, and I think that's the right way round to do it. But I, I had this constant oscillation, as you say, or maybe vacillation, um, <laughs> where you know I had to think, well, well, sometimes I want to draw attention to the method. So you know, I hit a few dead ends, and one of those is included in the book where I hit a point of failure and there were errors in my thinking and that really clearly articulates the, the problem with the method there but at other times actually I just want this to be about the book and to show that that's how it works. Yeah and I think this book is um, so Cloud Atlas is such an interesting example for for this kind of study so what was it about this particular novel that made it such a good example for exploring these balances and vacillations and, and methods well it's kind of a cheat in a way because 
while it's one novel, so I can say this is a, a work that focuses on one novel, it's actually a novel written in seven parts that are completely different to one another, written in different registers. Yes, they have interlocking overlaps, but fundamentally, this text, so for those who don't know it, it's, um, it's a novel that starts in the 19th century and moves forward in time over its progression into a far-flung science fiction dystopian future. But each chapter cuts halfway through, and each chapter is written in the supposed linguistic register of the time when it's set. And so really, although I, you know, it's, it's a single novel I'm studying, it's the polyvocality of it that is important and that made it interesting to me. I actually get to work basically on seven, six or seven books here rather than one, but I can say it's one at the same time. So Do they feel to be more like short stories that that blend together in some ways. They are. I mean that you know, and there are other examples of this. I think of um, Jennifer Egan's "A Visit from the Goon Squad" example, mm-hmm. where I think people have used the term "short story cycle" to think about how interlocking short stories sit alongside one another. In another sense, though, Cloud Atlas was written as a novel. It is supposed to be one coherent unit, and there are sometimes some quite naff overlaps between the sections. There's a sort of (laughs) comet birthmark tattoo that keeps cropping up. Um, But really, when when I read it, I, I like most readers of it, I was blown away by the virtuosity of Mitchell's stylistic. and what I wanted to know was what's actually going on how do you do that why is it that we recognize this as supposed 19th century prose what does Mitchell do in his writing that perhaps he doesn't even know he does himself and I actually got to present one of these chapters in front of him with him sitting on the front row of a conference which was terrifying but it was exactly as I'd hoped that I could tell him things he was doing that he wasn't himself aware of and I thought okay this is great this is what literary criticism needs to be doing what was his response to to some of these methods and to the things that you were telling him? Oh, he's an incredibly generous man. Um, he's you have a lovely you have a quotation in the book from an email that he sent you, and he comes across as just the kind of guy that you want to work with. Yeah, I mean, he's you know at the same time he has to be protective of his time, and you know he's but Sorry. incredibly generous uh, man who you know is sort of. Yeah, he's in. He's interested in what literary studies makes of critical works as well. He collaborates often with a professor at La Loya Mount University, Paul Harris, for creative writing experiments. Um, Cloud Atlas even mentions MAs in postmodernism and so on. So you know, there's kind of that sly wink at the academy, and he knows he's going to end up being studied. But I, I guess um, the things that kind of things I was telling him were, you know, the technicalities of the frequency of stop words in his writing and how that changes and also which words he'd managed to get wrong uh in the uh, 19th century portion which words were not accessible to a writer writing in 1850 which was quite fun because you know he said right next time i'm doing this i'm going to you know thoroughly comb these thesauri and these uh, (laughs) etymology sources to work out what's going on so yeah that was good fun a challenge for you for the next um for the next book I guess um so we've been using this this term so far distant reading and I guess what you do throughout the book or at least in the first three chapters of it is to apply different approaches to distant reading which can cover so much and the first chapter is um 
it's really about applying these kinds of digital methods to assess Mitchell's success in writing historical fiction. Can you walk us through how you how you go about uh, reaching those those conclusions and encouraging Mitchell to famously saw I more carefully next time? <laughs> sure. So, um, I mean, so when you say the first chapter, there's an introduction which kind of frames the the challenge of the terminologies of distant and close reading. The second, the the chapter one, as it's called, is about the version histories of this book and the the technical complications in its assembly, uh, which is about the fact that two versions of the novel entered circulation simultaneously due to editorial rewrites on one side of the Atlantic that weren't reincorporated at the other, meaning that one of the chapters is almost entirely different in one edition of the novel that circulated in America compared to those uh, that come from the UK. And this actually filters down, as I show in that chapter, into uh, different translations around the world. So not a, these online book groups that are, have uh, transatlantic uh, connotations or that are running across different translations are actually finding themselves reading very different copies of a work. And really, this was a, a textual scholarship chapter trying to think through what that meant. The next chapter is about genre, and that's where I really get into the level of microlinguistics or microtectonics, I think I call it at one point, which was trying as you said, to fit together how Mitchell's language changes between these chapters. And what, what I ascertained was that basically uh, conventional authorship profiling tools like Burroughs' Delta Technique, which is a, a fingerprinting tool in quotation marks for trying to ascertain authorship. So tends... this is the kind of thing that can tell us if Shakespeare wrote his sonnets. Yeah, basically, that's the idea. Well, I mean, what they're really measuring is homogeneity between texts and the word order across multidimensional vectors. But basically, those tools seem to think that each chapter of Cloud Atlas is written by a different author uh, and can accurately group them together using only a very small number of words that are not detectable by human eyes so, and is i on you know, these basic stop words that normally you'd discard but i was just fascinated to see when you start to write in these registers these you know surface changes have effect and given the history of close reading saying how important it is that we pay attention to minor details of language how is it we can't notice this as people but it's something that authorship profiling tools really prominently flag. I really, um, I did a little happy dance when I got to the paragraph where you start talking about stop words, because they're the kinds of things that normal corpus linguistics studies would automatically take out as being largely irrelevant, particularly if you're looking at more kind of thematic, um, more thematic arguments. Mm -hmm. But as you say, they can be so revealing, not just about a, a writer's um, style, but also about um, the hidden implications of um, of an argument. Have you had, did, or did you have conversations with people working in fields like corpus linguistics when you were writing this, um, and where you could explain or talk about why these words might be important despite their smallness? Well. So no, I didn't have conversations, but obviously, you know, I've read a lot about methods that suggest excluding stop words and so on. So I, 
it just when I when I ran some of these profiling tools without removing the stop words, so with the stop words still in, mm-hmm. I just noticed that they were often, you know, unsurprisingly the most commonly used words in the language. And then I thought, well, why are we discarding the thing that is most commonly used? Surely those are, you know, by their frequency of some import. And so eventually I started excluding everything that wasn't a stop word, looking at it the other way around and thinking, what happens when you, you know, if we're going to look closely, what happens when you look closely at this? Well, actually what you see is you can identify the different chats of Cloudless and the different generic registers purely by using words to which people rarely pay attention. And to me, that refutes a core assertion of the theory of close reading that we're really any good at paying attention to these kind of microcosms of language and certainly at frequency of insignificant in quotation mark words over the course of a novel length composition. So what impact do those stop words end up having on the different chapters? I I guess maybe expanding that as well, potentially on different genres more broadly. So I'm not sure that I can accurately say what effect it has. I mean, so one of the chapters is really easily discernible from the others because it's written in the present tense and none of the others are. So that was that's kind the of, end of the world chapter, right? No, that's the um, Louisa Ray mystery, which is this sort of fast paced action thriller noir kind of detective setup where, you know, uh, Louisa Ray creeps and uh, Bill Smoke lurks and every chapter starts with the full name of the protagonist again. So you get this kind of interesting uh, part of speech groupings that you don't see elsewhere. Full-on uh, railway thriller. Yeah, I, I mean, and then obviously, as you've just mentioned, the final chapter of Cloud Atlas is written in a fabricated dialect that's based on Russell Hoagland's Ridley Walker. So that, again, proved problematic for linguistic analysis. But the other chapters, you know, when you're shifting between a what what's actually called Wardour Street English style of 19th century prose, which is a pastiche pastiche of 19th century prose and say a science fiction novel well actually these stop word frequencies are all over the place and different enough for a computer to detect but not enough for a human to detect and I guess you know everyone wants to know what does that mean what does that mean well what it just means is that actually we're not capable of paying attention to things as the same level as the machine and the machine knows a lot more about the the actual register differences between these styles of writing than you see otherwise it reminds me actually though of um what ted underwood does in distant horizons where he says when you look at sci-fi what you expect to see over the history of science fiction are a load of objects that are spaceships and aliens and so on and you do get those but it's not those that really are the core delimiters of science fiction it turns out that it's adjectives of scale for instance, that really most strongly delimit whether a, a work is science fictional. And I just really like that kind of slanted angle on what is it that makes it this? Well, it could be something that isn't really relatable, to use a fashionable term, um, to a human reader, but that's really what's going on in the prose. Something that sneaks under the skin, I suppose, rather than necessarily being obvious in the description. Yeah. Um, that's a, a, a really lovely distinction, I think, particularly, as you say, we, we think as literary scholars that we're, we're really great at close reading, but actually, if the closest reading is 
the, how close do you want to go yeah well yeah the, the closest <laughs> reading is is only capable of being done by a computer um but that really opens out what digital literary scholarship might look like i suppose we'll come back to this question um if, if that's all right a little bit yeah. um a little bit later i really wanted to ask you um about that experiment that you mentioned that failed um i found it so stimulating reading an honest account about an approach that sounded kind of promising but then didn't really work um like we we all know everyone who works in digital humanities knows that a lot of the work is based on things that just go wrong and sometimes they go wrong in very productive and helpful ways and sometimes they just really don't work but you wouldn't necessarily know that from the published scholarship um I guess this is uh, it takes us back to a certain extent to conversations around the finality of publications. But can you talk us through that experiment and why it was that you wanted to still include it, even though it didn't work? So, um, yeah, so this is in the chapter three, which is about um, getting getting your prose fiction to align to. Uh, the genre form that you're trying to to emulate so it's, it's specifically looking at the 19th century um, bygone ease dialects that Mitchell invents that you know you don't want them I think he says somewhere you don't want them going around saying egads and because it you know it may be what they said but it doesn't sound realistic to our ears so you invent this off-kilter version of it and I wanted to know what went into that and, and to do some kind of measurement of, of what this prose style looks like. And I came across this idea that, well, perhaps the way that you create a language that sounds like it's come from the past is just to use words that aren't frequently used in contemporary English. So words that we use every day in the in contemporary parlance don't have any kind of air of estrangement to them whereas if you use uh, occasional occasionally strange words that you know might occur still but are chaosisms basically then that's the way to go and i saw that the merriam webster dictionary had the option to display how frequently a word was deemed popular and obviously i wasn't having a firing on, on all cylinders day because I instantly thought oh wow that's exactly what I need this measure of popularity is precisely related to how frequently a term is used and that's the way to go so I wrote a scraper that um, attempts to uh, go through the dictionary pull out the popularity of the terms but then as I went on I got some strange results and started to think that doesn't look right what does what does it mean that a word's popular does that mean that's how frequently it's used or does that mean that's how frequently people look it up if it's how frequently people look it up it might be because it's a very common word but they don't know what it means or it came up in a crossword clue that week or etc etc and very quickly i found myself expanding out this enormous list i think i've got eight eight reasons why something might be termed popular and the Merriam-Webster online dictionary at no point tells you what it means by popular. And so I just thought, well, I've done all that work and it's still a good hypothesis that I can test in another way. But it would be quite fun to detail why I went wrong and why you can be misled if you don't actually think through the assumptions underneath something as basic as how popular a word is. Well, and also there's, a, there's an important lesson there, right, into looking into the 
the provenance of the data that you're you're using um and applying (laughs) the same kind of critical thinking and close reading actually um a similar kind of process to to everything that you're bringing to bear on the text as well as just the text itself right it's one of the most annoying things to me that people think that data are somehow raw you know lisa gittleman and so on jeffrey bowker have said that raw data is an oxymoron but it's really true you you can't just take some someone saying this is this word is popular without you know doing a whole bunch of background interrogation of what that means and basically at the end of the day unless you collect it yourself you just don't have many of the contexts you need around data and so that's why i then went to a corpus of contemporary magazines to figure out whether or not these terms really were popular according to a, a wider publication basis so what was the corpus that you ended up comparing the merriam-webster data to uh, so it was the coca corpus which is the corpus of contemporary american writing um which has a break it's broken down there's a fiction corpus there's a magazine corpus and so on i actually opted to use the magazine corpus to represent contemporary english because i thought it less likely to have the kind of variation that I was seeing where people try and write a you know historical register than in the fiction corpus. But yeah. I I would uh, love that magazine though, the the nineteenth century column of heat or something. Yeah, um, I mean this is a this is a contemporary <laughs> corpus obviously, but there must be ways that you can um, get those newspaper archives and get textual corpora for stylistic analysis. Maybe this is a future business opportunity for you, Martin. Marketing something for budding writers about how to write historical fiction accurately. Yeah, and then we get into the whole debates about how neoliberal digital humanities is and how I can set up a sideline hustle in uh, selling things for utilitarian purposes and then I'll be hounded out the academy or something. I wonder or not the computer could write a more realistic or more um, believable uh, 19th century fiction than 19th century writers. Again, well, it'd, be really, it'd be really interesting to put the GPT-3 network um, that's just been released up to that challenge with that prompt. Um, and to see whether it understands fundamentally what the difference is in register over temporal periods. I haven't seen anyone try that experiment yet. but No, that's fascinating. There was, I think, a while ago, a corpus linguistics attempt to write a new um, grim fairy tale, um, but I think largely based on tropes rather than language, something that, that sort of drilled down into the detail of those stop words, for example. Um Right, and that that comes back to the divide between thematic content and linguistic styling and the ways that they subtly combine, right? You need your horse-drawn carriage, but just plonking a horse-drawn carriage in amongst a load of people using 1990s terminology of cool and so on, it's just not going to work. So that's the interesting balance for me is where you marry thematic content that's appropriate or inappropriate even for for the kind of strange disjuncts you get in steampunk and and weird fiction with the linguistic registers of a different time. So in the book you compare Mitchell's work to Melville's um, as I guess as part of your building up of this argument about the differences between his attempted historical register and what an actual 19th century text um, would have sounded like can you talk us a little bit through the process behind that and what what you found i guess between the comparisons of um, melville and mitchell 
Sure. Well, Dan well wasn't going to do another work of contemporary fiction that required me to retype any more novels. So I needed something that was out of copyright and that I could easily get an edition of. And Melville is actually explicitly mentioned in Cloud Atlas. So I thought, well, this is this has got to be a go to point. The historical fiction, the the historical diaries, is it 1850 that that's set in? Yeah, well, there's a lot, a lot of complications around that. Yeah. But yes, <laughs> broadly speaking, it, it's supposed to be around 1850. Um, so obviously that ties in extremely nicely with the publication date of Moby Dick, which then can act as a fantastic filter text to get rid of any language that wasn't available to Melville at that time. So actually, especially because it's so big, right? Exactly, it's a massive novel from 1850 that shows us exactly which words were in use. Now, of course, it doesn't get everything. Other novels might have used language that Melville didn't use, but for me, it was just a very easy way of narrowing down what I was working with that was distinctive about Mitchell's text compared to fiction of that time. The diary is also written from the point of view of a a traveler or explorer. Am I remembering this? Yeah, he's, he's on a boat as well. So there's a seafaring narrative. Um, I thought that was such a smart um, comparison to pick a novel that's that's firstly got the kind of expanse, I guess, of um, of terms to, to give yourself a first shot of, of identifying a broad enough range of terms, but also to keep it thematically linked. Um, it's, a, it's a really neatly sensitive way of approaching that kind of distant comparison, I thought. Right, yeah. And also... I mean, in um, I think it's Benito Serino as well. You've got um, the slave ship revolt, and the the actual argument I'm trying to make about Cloud Atlas is about its its status in relation to postcoloniality and neoliberalism, and you know, the slaving language plays such a huge role in how he creates that 19th century discourse of racial tension. That it just seemed to me again, you know, Melville has directly covered this. It's it's got to be a, a good comparison point. Yeah, I think that brings us on quite neatly, um, perhaps to your fourth chapter. Um, so this is the kind of the fourth and final full chapter, I guess, um, of the book, uh, which is on interpretation. Um, I wanted to ask you firstly about the about why you structured the book in that way with the um with it front-loaded i guess methodologically and then the interpretation at the end so it was this was thing i i'm denied over for, for absolutely ages um the this problem, is what i wanted to ask you about yeah, it. yeah really right well I'll just, that I'll, I'll just articulate the the challenge i faced which was if you put interpretation separately at the end, you've come up with a model where, again, digital humanities is seen as this kind of methodizing, scientific approach that tells you a load of formalistic features but doesn't really help us to understand literature. And then you put the actual interpretive work somewhere else, and, and that's problematic. If I didn't do that, though, and I just used a set of quantitative methods to tell a literary critical story, I felt I was missing a trick in speaking to... DH communities about articulating our value with respect to close reading. Because, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, although this, yes, it is the first book to just 
just examine a single book using digital humanities methods, it's by no means the first to examine text closely using digital approaches, right? Textual analysis is a core part of digital humanities work, has been for many years. It's, you know, there are lots of studies to which I point in the book that have already done this. But what I think we've missed is telling people how this can be woven into a more conventional literary critical analysis, how already we have examples of quantitative methods in the humanities. What happens when we just replace that with computational methods? So it was really, you know, I've got to pick one of these ways of doing it. And in the end, I opted to tell the story at the end in interpretation in its own section. Ideally, if we were in a world where we didn't have these debates about the merits of digital humanities and so on, I could have just presented this as a work of literary criticism, but just so happened to use many more quantitative and computational methods than other people's work. I th- one of the things that struck me about the first three chapters, I think, was that, that actually you have a really lovely balance between the computational work, the, the more kind of methodologically driven side of things, and um, demonstrating the meaning that can come that can come out of those methods, both in terms of the way that you work through a text, the results that, that you end up with, and with those unexpected um, questions that, that you're kind of guided towards when things either do or don't work. Um, so what, when you were, were pulling together that final chapter, what what do you think you wouldn't have noticed, I guess, without without the computational work? Was there anything that, that really surprised you about the, the novel or your reading of it? Well, so... The challenge as well, as we said before, just to reiterate this point, is that my reading is not just computational. It's come about through a very strong material engagement with that novel in retyping it that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And so the things that I found I was drawn to are as much a result of the computational work and and the textual history work as they were from sitting down with a novel and, and typing it out again. So, you know, it's it's not just there's just one space in which it came, which was computational study. Um, but fundamentally, I think the thing that sticks with me is how much this is a novel about archives, libraries and texts. And the metatextual elements really came through extremely strongly to me as I worked on this. How every item in it is a document within some kind of archive in the future, um, while the section that you know, is different between the versions and that I had to spend ages plotting out to get the differences right, uh, is also about an archivist preserving the words of a death penalty convict. Uh, so that, This you know, that, is the interview chapter. With- yeah, exactly. And it just, everywhere I look in that novel now, I see archives, texts, um, and their future misinterpretations by others because every chapter in the book is read in the subsequent chapter by fresh says people who frequently misinterpret what's going on. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a post-modern novel in the traditional sense there, but that really came through to me. Um, Is there a sense in the novel that um, the most important um, or at least the most, I guess, pervasive archivists end up being the people themselves, the the people who encounter the previous texts in whatever forms they work. I guess I'm tempting to get somewhere towards a question about the role of people in um, in this kind of computational 
work as well. Um, the, the novel demonstrates so nicely the importance of individuality and individualism, I guess, to an extent. Well, they kind of oscillate between between the pole of the individual and a broader structure of historical knowledge making. So I think what you're saying there is really important and it's important for what I'm doing as well. But, you know, close reading is not just going to be about computers picking out features in the future. It's got to have some relation to what that means to people who read texts. So you're absolutely right. There's what was the role of the individual in the future study of literature if there are more and more computational methods? Well, it's got to be somewhere between the individual completely reading things specifically on his or her own and you know broader patterns that are discernible that, that make up things that we can't detect as people. So that was, that was probably the second thing that I most detected in this novel was, as you say from that paraphrase, you know, a movement between people who might misinterpret and the broader truth of what it looks like, but that may be undetectable to those same people. Following on from that a little, I wondered if you could maybe say something more about the the changes to the politics of distant reading that I think you really neatly indicate over the course of this um, of this novel, but also perhaps why that matters, not just for us as literary scholars, but for the way that we all respond to the data that's all around us. I guess I'm thinking of Lauren Klein's, um, I think, really moving work on, um, on why distant reading matters for uh, undermining, undercutting existing power structures. And I guess this is particularly relevant this year, this summer. Um, so I guess my question really is, what what did you feel like you learned over the course of writing this book about about the politics now and the potential politics of this kind these kinds of distant methodologies? Well, so I, I mean, the obvious go to for distant reading as a political paradigm is that it allows us to include works in a canon that normally go unread. And it gives us the scale and scope to really examine, you know, in the kind of wildest formalist dreams, you know, every work of literature rather than the limited canon of literature that has been uh, shaped by extant political situations worldwide and so on. I guess the, the criticisms of distant reading and the criticisms of some forms of close reading are that it can be overly formalistic in its approach. And there's no guarantee that, you know, if you can spot formal features over in a broad canon, you can actually make some kind of political argument about what the texts are doing or what import they might have or what the, the political stance is within them. And I guess also the challenge is that distant reading can actually erase identity specification of an author. So the fact that you include uh, people from different backgrounds, whether minority or otherwise, and can broaden the gender, disability, sexuality, racial axes along which you're working is great. But at the same time, when you put everyone in a big pot together and read it as though it's one homogenous canon, you lose the specificity of those works. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't carve it up into smaller uh, buckets to try and work out what commonalities there are between different identity axes but i do think it's quite a complex terrain to negotiate between 
accusations of formalism and apolitical readings, um, breaking down canon formation as it already stands, while also trying not to lose the specificity of the works and potentially the identity axes along which they have been written. Do you think there's something um, here as well about the way that we, I guess, naturally read patterns? Um, so again, I think your, your point about stop words and reversing that normal process is, is a really neat example of this, but do you think that we, we need to be paying attention as much to what isn't in the pattern, um, the blank spaces um, in a, a map or the words that don't appear um, in a computation, in a corpus analysis or a linguistic analysis, as much as the ones that do, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really difficult because you know, there's been quite a lot of work on um, blanks and erasure and how these things are filled in. I actually wrote an article a couple of years ago on redaction in contemporary fiction and what it what it does and how we interpolate uh, into blank spaces the words that we think should go there due to under you know, conditioning grammatical structures around it, but. It's it's very difficult to do a socio sociology of absences well, because you tend to project from your own position what you think is missing, right? <laughs> um, and you don't. It's kind of one of those Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns. Otherwise, you know what to say. There's something missing is one thing. To specify what that missing thing is is another, and will depend upon the position from which you approach a text. So, I'm not sure I have. A huge amount more to say on that but it's it's a tricky one to negotiate is what i feel but paying attention to things we don't normally see is always going to be interesting paying attention to what isn't there is going to be much harder and the kind of awful digital humanities i think we're ending up in there right exactly <laughs> um so you conclude the book um by by kind of refusing to guess what might be next for computational literary studies, and slightly cheekily, I I wanted to ask if you if you are if you do feel able to make any conjectures, or at least if there's anything that you would like to see developing in an ideal world of future digital literary studies. So I've you know as I've already said, I greatly enjoyed Underwood and Piper's books, which really were focused on literary modeling as a technique which i think is the big big thing at the moment obviously it's probabilistic modeling using various machine learning techniques to try to uh, see broad scale literary history and i you know i find that all fascinating and and those two in particular for me have done a great job of articulating how how this is a literary narrative rather than a computational narrative mm -hmm. I've also um, I've been reading quite a lot recently for a course I'm teaching, you know, on ethical approaches within digital humanities. Um, I've enjoyed Rupika Reesom's work, uh, Ruha Benjamin's recent stuff, and also um, Algorithmic Bias in Search with Sophia Noble's book. And I really, you know, this is where, where, I, where we get back to big tent discourses. You know, I think that actually it's really nice to see these reflexive critical approaches coming through. And I like to see any work of digital textual analysis considering the ethical implications for what it does. So I'd like to see more of a marrying of those two sides. But in reality, I, I worry that they grow ever further apart and that you know, the people who hack start to 
uh, bed themselves in and, and claim the others are just yak. And that seems to me a really problematic distinction. So I hope that we'll continue to see a fusion of literary critical theoretical approaches, critical reflexivity and innovative textual analysis approaches coming together into one space. That brings us neatly to what are you up to at the moment? What, what, are, your, um, what are your work plans for the next few months or couple of years? Well, at the moment, I'm panicking about getting all my teaching online during the global pandemic. But um, <laughs> I am actually writing, <laughs> yeah, in, in research terms, I'm actually writing a history of the high level Internet piracy scene uh, around the turn of the millennium, which. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, this is, again, it's not a computational analysis of that, but it is a study of a computational phenomenon. And it you know, ranges from uh, documenting the custom. FTP demons that they they built to the trading and ranking practices among couriers between sites and the histories of ASCII art and the demo scene fusion that comes in in NFO files there so yeah that's I'm hoping to have that done by the end of the year but it's um it's a little bit slower going than I would have liked due to world situation but that's quite yeah pandemics will do that for you slow slow down your writing (laughs) that sounds like it's it's are you finding it fun to write it sounds like a hoop yeah, it's, well, it's it's really interesting what you can find because I, I have to rely on archives that people have surfaced that is of material that was never supposed to be made public. And in fact, most of the documents say, don't make this public. Um, but they have, and there is this massive archive called the De Facto 2 Archive of Where's Seen Documentation. Uh, that's my main source. And I'm, you know, I'm developing tools for quickly finding things within this, but Essentially, it's all about inferring a structure that you are outside of. And I I don't want to do any direct interviews or anything with people who are involved. I really want to just see what you can read out of these documents. So in that sense, it's a kind of sociological reconstruction from the archive. That's quite fun. A a mad and crazy archive as well. Yeah, it was a very immature archive in many ways full of the humor of teenage men so um, you can imagine how much fun that is on occasion but um yeah <laughs> a close reading challenge i guess indeed <laughs> martin this has been so much fun thank you so much for talking to me about um about the book and your um your work on the the digital humanities landscape more broadly it's been a real treat on this thank you for having me um but i will um i'll let you go and carry on putting your um your teaching prep up um but thank you again and we'll put a reading list if this is all right with you martin up with the show notes um up on the blog post so that you can find all of the the books that martin has um has talked about and all of the work that he's gestured towards but for now thank you and we'll see you all next time